it can be frustrating to talk to a committed skeptic because anything can be doubted. Anything you say can be subject to the argument, well, how do you know that? And the end result of this, if we accept the fact that anything can be doubted, that everything is assumed when it comes to certainty, the logical conclusion is that meaning is created, that we impose this vision of what existence is onto our experiences. Welcome to this episode on Manufactured Systems, and welcome to the Subjective Space. The first thing we'll need to touch on is the idea of perspectivism. Now, I've been reading The Will to Power by Friedrich Nietzsche lately, so I'm going to, I'm going to be bringing that up quite a bit in this episode, or at least relative to how much I usually bring up philosophical sources. I like to keep it more penned to my own thoughts, usually. But the essence of perspectivism is the idea that we're all living in our own realities, that going off of Kant's critique of pure reason, or building off of it, rather, what we have access to seems like the external impressing upon us, but it is at the end of the day, internal. Whenever I look in front of me and I read my notes, it seems the external is impressing upon me through photons, reflection, all that, in order that I'm observing this sheet of paper with notes on it. But that sensation is internal. That's how I'm relating to things. So the way that we structure our experience of existence, it's inherently subjective. It's inherently based on our perspective. Now, this goes deeper with Nietzsche's ontology, with this idea that there's no real world of truth. There's no thing in itself. There's only various layers or levels of appearance. But this is a worthwhile starting point for understanding the subjective in terms of us having our own experience of reality. Now, what I'd like to add on to that is the intersubjective, because I think it is worthwhile, it is useful to take for granted that there are other people with whom we're comparing our subjective experiences and finding a middle ground. Now, I've gone into great depth with this in the previous episode, so all I'd add on here is that the reality we build in the intersubjective, which, again, I'm splitting up perspectivism into subjective reality and intersubjective reality, that isn't truth. That isn't the purest essence of existence or the world of truth or the thing in itself, however you want to phrase it. What that is, is a convenient fiction in order for us to communicate with each other. And this brings us to the question of how do we feel so sure that there is some sort of objective reality? Well, we project it. We impose this idea of objectivity onto our experiences because we can observe consistencies within them. We take these consistencies as a sign that they are inherently causally related, that they can be trusted as truth, that because my book is in the same spot it was when I left it there this morning, then I have access to some perfect sense of reality because it's convenient. It's just easier to take that perspective from day-to-day -day life. Again, in The World of Power, Nietzsche categorizes this idea of truth 
that we have is a physiological convenience that the ordering of things that we do in our heads and project onto the world it increases our ability to survive as a species as an individual and in regard to this idea of scientific objectivity and again i've discussed this in previous episodes if you see an experiment produce the same results over and over and over again you see that consistency and you assume it's an indicator of an absolute law this is how reality is this is how it operates when really we can say that there is a consistency there but in terms of absolute we're still completely blind so where do we go from here do we just curl up in a little ball and accept the fact that we can't know anything no given the fact that everything we know everything we consider about the world is manufactured what we do is we lean into that and this still might seem like a nihilistic take that there's something lesser in a value being manufactured but there's nothing that is inherently valuable all value we put onto the things around us or the things we perceive to be around us depending on what your philosophical stance is take for example food you might say well food is inherently valuable but what do we mean when we say food because we also have you know dog food cat food fish food and that would suggest to me that when we we talk about food we're not talking about anything in particular but rather our relationship what we're establishing is relationship to an object as something that's edible so when we say food that's something that can be eaten by a human so yes technically it's inherently valuable because the meaning of the word is well this is something that's valuable in a particular way take grapes for example they're delicious i like them i find them to be valuable they are food but are they inherently valuable no maybe from a human perspective but if you're a dog they're poison or even if you're just another human allergic to grapes then they're not valuable they're not food you cannot eat that and to go back to nietzsche he says that nihilism is just the impotence of creativity the inability to create value to create this system that we impose upon the world to give it meaning so in saying that all meaning is manufactured all value is manufactured all understanding any system of perceiving the world is inherently manufactured that's not a doom and gloom take because there's still it's still meaningful it's still meaning it's still value it's just a recognition that it's not from the thing in itself if that even exists but rather because it relates to us in a positive way or a meaningful way and it's it's all about relationships how we relate to things and i'll be getting into this a lot more in a future episode i'm very excited i'm going to be talking about ontology my own personal ontology but it it is a system of relations and whenever we talk about value or meaning or anything that is certain it's really just an expression of how we relate to it we have to ask at this point how are we proceeding 
in what way can we make any progress on this question? And for me, this would go back to one of my favorite quotes from Wittgenstein, which is the idea that philosophy is the articulation of intuition. Now, this is a definition of philosophy. I'd find it to be reductive and limiting, but I do think that there is some truth in it, that whenever I'm putting out my ideas, I'm not responding to some idea of truth. I'm not discovering anything. What I'm doing is gathering up all my intuitions and presenting them. And this can, <laughs> again, go back to Nietzsche. This idea that the truths, or what may be presented as truths that I'm discussing right now, they're truths to me. They're my perspectives that I'm sharing. So whenever we're going through this task of manufacturing a system of ontology, of epistemology, or of philosophy in general, how we understand existence and the world around us, how we understand the experiences we have, they're inherently just articulations of intuition. And whether they speak to you or not goes off of your own perspectives. Do these ideas make sense to you? But that can pose a problem in itself. Therefore, we must visit the topic of what we know and what we must assume, what we must speculate. In this, I'm going to be referring back to our first discussion, the first episode, in that what we know is subjective, but even what we know in the subjective is very limited. I know that I am aware of the thoughts I'm having, the sensations I'm experiencing, the actions I'm taking, but there's no real certainty in that. But as I've said before, at a certain point, to move forward, we need to accept some things as taken for granted. We need to accept some things as being true in their own right, not true as a thing in itself, but true in the sense that they form a cornerstone of how we are approaching the world. If you and I cannot agree that the shared intersubjective reality of the glass in front of me is true, despite the fact that our subjective realities converge over the station, it limits what we can move forward to speculate. And yes, it's helpful, it's necessary to backtrack and say, well, what really is the basis for our assumptions? That is an excellent philosophical exercise. But whenever we close into practicalities and, strangely enough, abstractions, there are certain things we have to just accept as known, not because they are self-evidently true or that there is some special quality to them, but that if we don't concede this aspect of reality, we will be stuck at the stage of thinking, well, nothing can be accepted. We move back to that skeptic rhetoric that led us to this initial conclusion of the creation of meaning, of manufactured systems. This is why we're moving forward in this direction of things being manufactured, because this concession to appearance allows us to continue to build something that we can work with rather than just continually doubt and doubt and doubt and not have any sort of meaning or value 
or reality that we can share together and reach conclusions and ideas. So when it comes to the topic of what we know, we have to expand this idea of what is known beyond the Lockean idea of empiricism, beyond even the platonic ideal of things that are known, that have justification for us knowing it, things that are true. Because epistemically, we are dependent on one another. We really can't know anything without other people. And that's not just within this theory of intersubjectivity. It's not just in this idea that me saying I can see this glass in front of me is solely an aspect of my subjective reality until I have it confirmed by someone else, at which point it becomes intersubjective. I mean, the fact that if I want to know how climate change is affecting my reality, my world, however you want to phrase it, I can't do that on my own. I'm not a scientist. And even if you are a scientist, when it comes to climate change, like there, there are papers published with a thousand authors. And I, <laughs> it's been like a month since I've recorded one of these but I feel like I have brought this up before, that there are specialities in knowledge and investigation in this material realm, these consistencies we can pick up on that require communication beyond just these dedicated spaces of investigation. So there is an element of speculation when it comes to accepting intersubjective reality. When it comes to accepting information epistemically, whenever we are dependent on others for that information. But for us to have any chance of workable information in which our activities can be well informed in the direction we take, it's necessary that we consider, to some extent, these speculations to just be a given. Because just saying, I don't know that climate change is happening because I haven't personally done the research. Well, that's impossible. I can't do the research on my own. For any hope of understanding beyond just the four walls around me, there has to be some amount of trust. So it is useful, it is helpful to extend the realm of what we know. Maybe not in terms of absolute philosophy, but in terms of pragmatic assumptions. Because again, as Nietzsche points out, when we talk about the world of truth, when we talk about truth, that is something that at its core is rooted in the notion that these things are helpful for us surviving as individuals and as a species. So while we cannot philosophically justify this epistemic dependence you know, in in a pure state, it's still worthwhile to take it as a pragmatic truth. Because what else are we going to do if we don't take that leap of faith, to borrow a phrase from Soren Kierkegaard, if we don't take that leap of faith, we're really stuck on the... (laughs) I'm trying to formulate a metaphor. We'd be stuck on the rock or cliff face, however you want to phrase it of our very limited subjective apprehension. So with this extension of what we can know, well, what must we speculate?
Well, that would be the ontological. What is being? What is the constitution of existence? Now, personally, I think that any statement has some amount of implicit ontology behind it. Whether it's something as simple as me making this podcast is a denial of solipsism. At least to the extent that I'm not just doing it because I like the sound of my own voice. And that's why we need to create some sort of separation between the way we phrase things colloquially and how we phrase things accurately. Like There are some physicalists who would like to say that there's no such thing as a table. You might as well just say, well, there is a bundle of atoms over there that's shaped in the form of a table. That's more accurate. It's also a mouthful, and it would be really annoying is if that's how you phrased everything out of your mouth. So whenever it comes to epistemic phrases, the implicit ontology there would be more dubious as there's a differentiation between how we conceive of things philosophically and how we would discuss them in conversation. That separation between the subjective reality and intersubjective reality being bridged by sort of just taking things as a given. Like, whenever I say that this uh, can of energy drink is blue, I'm not even referring to the particular wavelength so much as I'm having experience that I know is blueness, and the person who's also looking at that can can agree that, yeah, that's also what they call blueness. Yes, this is made consistent through them using the same frequency of light, or <laughs> I shouldn't talk about science or physics too much, but I'm, I'm hoping that I'm understanding that uh, color theory correctly. But that's not really the point. If I were to say, oh, this can is this frequency of light, you'd look at me like I was out of my mind, because that's not communicative. That's not useful. So getting back to that idea of implicit ontology, whenever we have more philosophical statements, more abstract statements, then we really get into the meat of it. Take, for example, ideas of morality. Like, Kant's deontology assumes that rationality is, in fact, a universal, that that is what makes it a metaphysically consistent consideration regarding judgment and how we use judgment in order to make determinations and figure out, well, if everyone were to do this action, this would be the effect. Ergo, deceit would sort of crumble society if everyone was deceitful, so I shouldn't lie. That's, that's a very, very easy one. Now, the interesting implication of this idea of, well, implicit ontology, I'm sort of doubling up on words here, but what really drives me to this position, to taking this position, is that from a, a simple philosophical statement, you could derive an ontology of what would be the necessary constants within existence for this to be sensible and justified, or just, just any statement. But the converse of this would be that any ontology would have an implicit manufactured system, or within our current discussion, it would have an implicit manufactured system. So whenever we're talking about how do we form a system of value, of meaning, 
of understanding of the world, it's both on its own accord of interacting with the things around us, with the people around us, but also a search for the foundational aspect of, of existence, the ontological. And from here, what we can do is see to it that they match up, that there is consistency throughout this system. Because if our ontology does not support the assumptions that we make within our systems of value and morality and anything else, then we don't have a fully fleshed out understanding of existence to work with. Because the, the more consistent, the more in-depth we go, the more room we have to explore around and start building off of things. Now, I'd like to do a quick vocab clarification, because a lot of people would say that this sounds like nihilism, which is strange talking about Nietzsche, as Nietzsche's philosophy was very much concerned with the impact of nihilism within Europe after the Enlightenment. And the, the clarification I want to make is this idea of existential nihilism. This idea that there's no inherent meaning except for the ones that we create. And I wouldn't say that my philosophical leanings could be accurately described with the term existential nihilism, but for shorthand, it's a workable way to get your head around the concept or colloquialize it into that convenient way of speaking we do in uh, the intersubjective space. But where I want to go from here is the idea of existential nihilism in a societal context, which, again, going back to the concern of Nietzsche's philosophy. Because in the era we're living in, there's this term that's been thrown around a bit, post-truth. And the angle that I approach this in is it academically post-truth within uh, epistemology. It's a bit controversial for the same reasons fake news is. And I've, I've actually <laughs> I've written an essay about how they, there's a crowbar of separation. Post-truth can be a worthwhile concept. Uh, in, in my viewpoint, it's the breakdown of the subjective and intersubjective, if not a fracturing of the intersubjective. There are some people whose understanding of reality is just radically different from the rest of the populace. And that brings us to the question of what do we do? Where do we go from here? And in a broader, more existential way, one of my favorite quotes from Nietzsche, and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have the book on hand, it's the idea that we are lost at sea. Not only have we burned the bridges behind us, but the land itself has been destroyed. There are no stars above us to guide us. That's what Nietzsche means when he talks about the death of God. It's not literal. It's this absence of this centralized force of meaning, value, and direction across society. Religion as the form of organizing beyond the community that's been disrupted and done away with post-enlightenment. If you've been paying attention to the episode, the answer I have in mind is fairly obvious. We have to create something, something that we can agree upon. And the most obvious contender would be science. Dan Harmon has this way of describing science, of comparing it to religion, as the, the priest cast in the religion of science. Apologies to anyone that cringed at that sentence, because <laughs> I know some people will take issue with it. But the scientists, the priests of science, are searching for God by holding hands 
like they're looking for a lost child. And I just really love that phrasing. But science, as we've discussed previously, it can't really get us to an ontology. It can definitely inform us and make sure that we're approaching it in a, if not systematized, then a way that is reflective of the consistencies we can record and notice in our shared reality. But there's there's the problem of the necessary reduction of ontology into language. Uh, Heidegger talks about this in his letter on humanitarianism, I believe. But the language of metaphysics and the language of ontology are different. Uh, that has to be said outright. These are completely different conversations we're trying to have. But also, there's no real language to pen to being as a thing in itself, because it will inevitably come from a anthropocentric perspective. There's no way for us to have a complete understanding of existence, because you can't speak to existence. You can only speak from existence. There's no outside perspective on this. We're only able to look at the machine from the inside. But don't fret. This isn't a reason for consternation, but inspiration. We have so much room for how we approach our philosophy, for how we can consider the shape of our existence, that even if our speculations don't turn out to have any weight or practical use to them, or even if they turn out to be misguided. It's still worthwhile to exercise our brains, expand our considerations, and seek out new insights. For example, there's this conception called Gaia theory, or you could also think of it as supraorganisms, which is where I'm going to start with the idea of supraorganisms, as I, I think Gaia theory is easiest to explain if you use the conception of an ant colony, the, the entire colony being the species, where the ants are physically separate cells in this supraorganism of the ant colony. Likewise, you could see the collective society of humans, the human species, as a supraorganism, which is a fairly clear denial of great man theory as the progress we make through the centuries is necessitated by our progress as a species, as we learn to think together more clearly. And that brings us to Gaia theory, this idea that the Earth itself is a form of supraorganism, with its various ecological systems being driven by their dependence on one another. And with this different model, this different manufactured system of considering the world, we can change our perception of nature from something to be dominated, but rather as something that needs to be worked with, to be conscientious about how we relate to the earth around us, our impact on these various systems of which we are a part. But there's an immediate criticism that needs to be considered if we're going down this path, which is the inherent danger of advocating for the notion of a manufactured system of meaning, which is that someone could use this to justify any sort of heinous act, either through apathy or nihilism, or by creating some sort of morality out of harming others. And the first thing to address here would be the 
subjective reality. Because if a manufactured system is only workable within a singular subjective reality, then I would argue there's an inherent flaw there. Because unless you're living off on an island, you're going to be surrounded by people. You're going to have to interact with other people. And to deny this in your conception of the world, well, that's essentially a form of solipsism. If there's no potential for the incorporation of others within the system you've created, then all you've really managed to do is deny the intersubjective reality in favor of living in your own little world. It's nothing more than fantasy masquerading as philosophy. Now, this gets more difficult whenever it comes to systems which do take the intersubjective reality into account. And here, it'd be best to look at it from an epistemological angle, specifically in terms of echo chambers. Now, I'm only going to touch on echo chambers briefly, but if you'd like to uh, read more about it, I'd highly recommend the Nguyen essay, Echo Chambers and Epistemic Bubbles. But essentially, the problem here is not just the isolation of thought, but the dismissal of counter-arguments and counter-evidence. Again, there's, there's a lot more to be said about this, but in practice, we could just say that it's, it would present a lack of academic rigor if we're trying to construct some view of existence while disregarding the input of any group that we've demonized or that might disagree with us. And it, it, it boils down to that same problem that we'd have with creating a manufactured system exclusively for the subjective reality, just extended into a, into, <laughs> the problem has been extended into the intersubjective reality along with the system. I guess you could phrase it like that. But I, I do have one more thing to say about echo chambers slightly. There's definitely an argument to be made that, as Nguyen puts it, the idea that cults are the pinnacle of echo chambers is reductive, in my view. And I, I definitely love the phrase high-control groups. Because when you hear the word cult, you think of a very specific connotation along with that word. Typically, you'd think of a noxious religious cult when this behavioral pattern can be seen in political groups and self-help groups, pseudoscience groups, really anything where you could construct a manufactured system that demands obedience and conformity while excluding outside consideration. So there's definitely an element of echo chamber in there, but it just goes beyond it. Again, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. So for further reading, I would recommend Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. But very, very generally, what I'd like to discuss in this, this particular topic is the A, us versus them narrative, and B, the leader, the figurehead of whatever the, the movement is. Now for this consideration, we'd have to look at the enter's objective as being beyond just a community reality. I think this distinction could be easiest summed up as every culture is going to have a different interpretation of the moon, a different relationship with the moon, but everyone on the earth, well, most everyone, can look up at the sky at night and say, that thing exists. We see that. It's there. That is the 
level of intersubjectivity that I'm referring to, with this distinction between the high control group being, among many other things, the inability for this manufactured system to reach that level of intersubjectivity. There is a necessity for there to be an us versus them. And of course, due to there being a figurehead, there's a centralization to it. Again, we come to that lack of academic rigor when the manufactured system you're pitching is dependent on a relationship to another person. And I do want to make it clear, I'm not suggesting that the reason people join cults is a lack of academic rigor. That'd be not only insensitive, but a complete misreading of how those groups form. And I, I will try and touch on this on a future podcast, because I do think it is a, an important topic to talk about, especially if you're interested in esoteric or more out there <laughs> considerations of the universe or reality or existence or however you want to phrase it. On a quick side note, I didn't expect to say the phrase, however you want to phrase it, as much as I should have, given the name of the podcast being The Subjective Space. Oh no, I thought the thought was funny. But in any case, I think the main way we can address this danger is by checking and double-checking, not taking anything for granted, interrogating our assumptions, and even asking, well, what would this look like if it was accepted on a societal level? And this, for me, is where the value of philosophy comes in. Because it allows us to think about these things more deeply and to not just jump in to some random or convenient conception of the world, but rather to have a dialogue across time and space. Like, one of Wittgenstein's criticisms of philosophy is that people kept going back to the, the old stuff. And his point was, like, if you look at it from a scientific viewpoint, why are we going back to Aristotle? Why, are, why haven't we progressed far beyond that? And the answer is that it's not like science. It's a conversation. It's a species-wide discussion throughout, as I said, time and space. And sometimes you want to scroll up in the group chat and, <laughs> and reply to Aristotle because, well, maybe there's something he said that you think is worthwhile to reconsider within the new context of the time you're living in. Now, I'm not saying that philosophy is going to give us a unified system where we're all going to one day agree on these things, but hopefully one day we can turn it into an active conversation rather than a passive disagreement. And I'm, I'm speaking in terms of people who aren't philosophers or academics. Well, that's been our discussion on manufactured systems. Thank you for listening, and as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, there is a Curious Cat set up, links in the description, as well as a Facebook page that I've just set up, and I've been posting memes on it. So I'll see you next month, or talk to, <laughs> talk to you next month, I guess. And thank you for listening to The Subjective Space.